Welcome, everyone, to the Genetics Podcast. This is our third episode in the mini-series called Precision Pioneers, and I'm here today with Phil Vickers, who is the CEO of Phase Medicine. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much, Patrick. Glad to be here. The provisional theme for this episode is running towards challenges, because when we caught up uh, ahead of this recording, it became clear to me that your career has really been a series of uh, taking on new challenges and then once you've conquered those, moving on to, to something different. So I'd love to actually take your career a little bit chronologically. Uh, you started working on applying molecular approaches to drug discovery, and you have a, a background in, um, in molecular biology. I'd love to hear in your early career how the approaches to drug development evolved. In particular, um, I think you were working during the advent of DNA sequencing, and there were all sorts of questions about patenting gene sequences and, and things like this. So I'd love a little bit to just talk about how you got into drug development and discovery in the first place and, and how things changed during your early years working on common diseases. Yeah, thanks. Um, so in backgrounds in biochemistry and uh, traveled the world to, to kind of, uh, for traveling the world's sake, but also to kind of uh, expand my experience in, in biology, did my well, my undergraduate in England, uh, my postgraduate studies were in, in Canada and at, at the NIH, sponsored by Merck. And Merck offered me a position to to join them in, boy, seems like a long time ago now. Uh, it is, actually. So it's the, it was the late 80s when I uh, joined a place called, small place called Merck Frost in, uh, in Montreal, Quebec. And, you know, as I look back, it was an incredible time to join the industry in the late 80s when, when I... When I first joined, I would say um, the focus was was largely on sm classic kind of small molecule medicinal chemistry drug discovery. We would uh, test test those drugs in um, animal models of disease. Um, then we'd look at patients as more of a homogeneous group of patients. We didn't know all of the genetics that we know now, so we wouldn't wouldn't um, break them down into different groups. And it was what some call the kind of blockbuster era of drug discovery. You'd be looking for a drug that would treat as many patients as possible and try and, you know, get a, get a blockbuster from it. And so from the late 80s, if you just look forward, even just a decade from there, um, you know, you'd see probably in the late 80s, early 90s, the very first monoclonal antibody therapies. I think you started to see the recognition of mutations in patients and populations and potential impacts. So BRCA1, for example, was in the 90s in breast cancer. And then it culminated in what must have been, I guess, 2000, 2001, uh, the, the sequencing of the human genome, which I think in the industry was an interesting time because you had uh, incredible excitement about the fact that the human genome was being sequenced and wow, what a fantastic thing for for the world and for for drug discovery, but interestingly, it created a little bit of fear in some pharmaceutical companies because there was this worry that, my gosh, all potential drug targets will be known. Um, there will be a land grab of intellectual property where people will patent all of the genes and will be locked out of areas, and, and different companies um, reacted in different ways to that. Some would. Um, get large partnerships with genome sequencing companies and and just try and patent things and lock up areas and only work on those new targets. I, I'd, I'd kind of moved to Pfizer at that point, and 
Pfizer's approach was a little bit different, I would say. And there wasn't an overreaction, but it was a recognition of the potential of, of the genome sequencing. And so when I joined Pfizer in the early 90s, um, it, kind of these changes uh, coincided with changes in my career. So I, I headed molecular pharmacology in the UK for Pfizer, where we were looking at you know, molecular approaches to drug discovery. It was a new department that had never occurred at Pfizer before to have such a department. Um, and then as we found out more about the sequences, it, it became part of the fabric of drug discovery. So we, we moved all of those capabilities into each therapeutic area. Then I headed the genomic and proteomic sciences, so looking more globally at how we can think about genomics. And then I headed a research technology center at Pfizer. So that was to apply new technologies to try and understand how, how you know, genes interact together, how they work together, looking at, looking at networks of genes, not just individual genes. Um, and now you, you kind of leap forward to today when you have the ability to have incredible amounts of knowledge about human disease and variation between patients. And you have this area of, I would say moving into more personalized medicine and an incredible array of therapeutics, not just small molecules, but antibodies, antisense, siRNA, cell therapy, gene therapy. It's been an incredible time to be working in the, uh, in the industry, I would say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. D during the early days of DNA sequencing, there were a ton of high-profile court cases. That, did those have any impact on the work you were doing, or was it more of a you know a, a potential sideshow or distraction where where people were watching them and concerned about what might happen, but nothing ultimately really materialized? I would I would say the lat more the latter. I think there was um, you know in the labs, people were very excited to to be doing the science and pouring over all of the all of the genetic data and such like but i would say that at a senior high level in the in the organization there certainly was some concern and you're right these would have been pivotal if you could just sequence a gene and anything that would have come from that gene everything that could ever target that gene it would have it would have fundamentally changed drug discovery changed everything you know people would have been able to lock up genes and it would have um, closed down certain operations because you couldn't work on something. And actually, it was uh, there was a lot of uh, overreaction at that point, I think, and um, it, it didn't pan out that way. You look today, even many years later, we're still trying to understand um, how different genes and different mutations can affect and, and then going after those as a specific target. So I think it was an overreaction at the time. Was there concern that this technological revolution might might threaten the large and existing pharma companies at the time? So uh, looking back on it, there have been, it seems like most companies have basically just absorbed DNA sequencing as part of the toolkit. Um, you know, Pfizer, as, which you mentioned, is uh, was not replaced by a newfangled company built around DNA sequencing. Was that a concern? And, and there have been a couple of examples like, I suppose Genentech invested heavily and uh, you know aggressively early on in DNA sequencing and and are um, a big part of Roche today. But there weren't was that a concern that actually the whole industry might be completely disrupted, or was it always um, you know seen as part of the toolkit that the big players would ultimately just adopt? 
Um, I think originally it was felt that it could fundamentally change the industry, and that's where some of the fear the fear came from. But I, I would say, and, and you point out Genentech, um, there were other companies. You can't look at Big Pharma as just being a monolith, like every company looked at it the same. There were there were some companies that, and still are today, some companies that focus on um, much more early stage, cutting edge biology, some others that come in later, they bring in assets from, from others that have developed them. And I think there's, there was a discussion about, well, what's at the core of being a large pharma company? What's our core ability? And there was some thinking at the time that if, if we were locked out of targets, what would, a, what would a company, a large company look like? And maybe it would be, well, we have such incredible infrastructure for, for running clinical studies, for commercializing drugs, that maybe we would, there would be a shift away from doing some of the earlier discovery, and that would go to other companies. And we'd just bring in things later and then do the kind of large-scale stuff. But I think it's true that big companies even today have that incredible infrastructure and use it like that. But there's also a lot of really good early research that's still being done at those big companies as, as, as well, I think. So after working for a number of years in common disease and, and I think primarily large pharma, you took a big jump into the world of rare disease. What I'm interested in what caused you to make that change? Did you see something changing in the industry like the advent of DNA sequencing or, or were you just looking for a new challenge or did someone from Shire come to you and say, hey, there's this uh, new exciting thing over here you can be a part of? No, it's, um, it, it's interesting. I've been in, as you say, I've been in large companies, started out at Merck, I was at Pfizer, I've been to Boehringer Ingelheim, the largest privately owned pharmaceutical company in the world, which was it's a great company, fascinating company. I'd, I'd tried a little bit of working in the biotech industry from there, which is, again, quite a leap going from a huge company to a small 20-person 20 20 company. But we'd succeeded, but then I was thinking, where do I want, what do I want to do next? And I heard about um, Shia was looking for a head of R&D focused in the, the rare disease space. And... Um, I'd, the more I thought about it, the, th the more I thought how refreshing it would be because I, I, as you say, I'd worked in, in areas where there's um, very large patient populations in arthritis, in, in, in asthma, and there's still some unmet medical need in some of those populations. But I tended to be working on programs where we were looking for best-in-class drugs, the best something that would attack a particular target. And I actually wanted to work on more first-in-class targets, things that nobody had ever worked on before. I heard of an opportunity to head R&D as Shire was becoming available. And frankly, I just called up Sylvie Gregoire, who was the president of um, the, the, rare, the rare genetic disease part of Shire, and just asked if I could be a candidate for that. And credit to Sylvie, she didn't just put me into the HR machine and let me work through. She said, well, why don't you swing by and we'll have lunch tomorrow? So I did. And uh, we connected. I met with a lot of people and board members. And the more I uh, spoke to people and the more I thought about science and its application to drug discovery, the more I got excited about the opportunity. I was, I was, delighted, to, I was delighted to go there. I, you know, I recognized that with the greater understanding of the link between genetics and disease and patient stratification and 
enrollment criteria being affected by genetics, where better to think of applying that kind of thinking to the rare uh, genetic disease space? Um, and you, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I realized how much I would enjoy it when I took that leap, but it was. Um, incredible, and, and and I started to then become aware of some of the very very unique challenges, but also opportunities that there were in the rare disease in the rare disease space. And, and joining Shire at the time was also a uh, is a bit different from joining a large company focused in rare diseases, where sometimes larger companies focused in in rare diseases will. We'll think of an, an approach to develop a drug and consider, well, we could get this drug and test it in a small, well-defined rare disease patient population. And if it works, we could then expand out into more, into more common indications if, if the biology kind of would, would transition. Shire was very different. We, we had a, an intense focus on just the patients with rare diseases, and that opened up all kinds of opportunities for us. As, for example, if you get a, a mutation that causes uh, a change in either the levels of expression of an enzyme or the activity of an enzyme, well, you can have an enzyme replacement therapy to help treat that patient, but that enzyme replacement therapy is not going to help any other patients other than those patients that have are lacking that enzyme. So it's very, very targeted, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that uh, that level of thinking, I would say. Yeah, I can imagine. So can you give a little bit of a, an idea of the scale that a company like Shire works at? How many diseases are are they, you know, at, at the time while you were there working on at one time? How many, how many candidates in the pipeline? How many, you know, how many targets you're working on? How many drugs in clinical trials? How many that have already been approved? And, and also how that might compare to to one of the large pharmas, just for anyone who's especially who's listening that hasn't had a chance to work from big all the way to small in the way that you have. So yeah, I joined Shire when there was um, about 5,000 people in, um, in the company. And that compares to what at the time would have been close to 100,000 that would be in, in a, large, a large pharma company. Um, and I actually really liked that size of Shire at the time. You, could, um, you didn't have huge amounts of bureaucracy you know, you could you could champion a program and go straight to the CEO. Even even people working in the labs, if they had a great idea, they would come to me as I headed R and D. I'd talk about it with with Sylvie Gregoire, president of the Rare Disease, and then we might we might speak to the CEO. But there was a real chance if you had a good idea to be able to influence what you did. So it was highly dynamic, very quick decision making, and we looked at it as an opportunity to develop our own drugs through our own thinking, but also to engage experts in, in, in rare diseases. And that's one of the, one of the uh, opportunities, I would say, in rare diseases. There's not so many uh, uh, physicians out there that are really focused on those diseases, but boy, do they know a lot about it when they do focus. And so we would, we would speak to them. Um, so one of the... Interesting, coming back to what you were asking around how many, um, you know, programs would we have at any one time. One, one difference about running R&D in a rare disease company is a rare disease isn't 
like a therapeutic area. And sometimes people get this confused. It's, you know, if you're working in, in uh, cardiovascular disease or neuroscience, you're in a very specific area of, of, of physiology and drug discovery, and you go really deep in that area. If you're in a rare disease, it's defined by the number of patients that have your disease. And so, so actually, we were working across many disease areas, and, but we would be looking for specific types of targets that we would move forward. Now, in the end, when I, when I left, I joined in 2011. I was there for six, seven years. At the time I left, we had 40 clinical development programs going at the time across all different ranges now. Um, and we'd be looking to move candidates into the clinic uh, every year, a few, you know, or two, or two or three things that we'd be wanting to move into the clinic every year. It's a whole new scale when you're, um, when you're in a, a, a Pfizer or a GSK. It has to be. But uh, that's the kind of numbers of um numbers of programs that we'd be moving forward yeah that, that's really helpful and you said before that you have to pick really carefully which targets you focus on is is that because of the the toolkit you have or had at the time you're only able to really drug um some fraction of of all proteins i wonder if you could tell a little bit more about what the limitations are if you if you have a rare disease that affects a certain kind of protein or in a particular tissue what are the ones you can work on easily and what are the ones that are currently un, unreachable or difficult to reach based on the toolkit we have? So genetics, thinking about the genetics of disease was very important to us. So we would have certain criteria that we would, um, we would weigh up as we were thinking about which kind of targets we would work on. And kind of confidence in rationale would be one of those. So if we have an enzyme replacement therapy, if we have a small molecule that hits a particular target, what's our level of confidence that we have that this would actually have a meaningful benefit to patients? And so um, one of the factors in that was the genetics associated with the disease. How clear was the genetics associated with disease? And, and so we, we, looked about, we looked into... Um, the genetics as, a, as a, key, a key factor for considering where we'd go into. And so there would be some, you know, we had a, we had a, a significant franchise in lysosomal storage disorders and um, mutations in enzymes that um, were associated with lysosomal storage disorders. And in a number of cases, uh, Fabry disease, alpha-galactosidase, Gaucher disease, glucose cerebrosidase, Hunter syndrome, idosulfase, you know, you've known over time that this is the enzyme that um, uh, if you could correct the loss of the enzyme or the decreased activity of the enzyme, and if you could get your drug to where that patient needs that drug, you'd have a pretty good chance of success. And, and then we'd look at a wide range of other things. Um, how, how could we enroll patients? Um, how quickly could we enroll patients? What, how would you measure disease? Um, is it a rapidly progressing disease? Is it a slowly progressing disease? You can't have it too slow or else you can't run a clinical trial within the time frame that you need to. But if you have a disease where the disease manifestations are very rapid, then you've really got to be able to, 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 um, to be able to measure that. I would say... And so all of these things were important. How, what biomarkers could we use to be able to demonstrate 
our molecule was doing what we wanted in, in men? What would be the clinical endpoints that we would be looking at? What's the regulatory approval path that we think? And one of the beauties of working and challenges of working in the rare disease space is actually in most cases we were, we were working in areas where nobody had ever developed a drug before. So you're not following a path that somebody else has, has, has laid, like you might do in a common indication, but you're actually needing to get people, and it doesn't suit everybody, but somebody who is excited by that opportunity to build a path rather than follow somebody else's path. And so the, do, the doability, the link to disease, I'll, I'll give you one example of, if I may, give you one example of something very, very specific in, in Hunter syndrome that I mentioned. And you're asking what are some of the particular challenges? Well, um, you can develop, as we did, Elaprase, great drug, intravenous enzyme replacement therapy will bathe organs and actually had a tremendous impact on the lives of, of patients who suffered from Hunter syndrome. It, it changed them from being concerned about um, early mortality to having a more fulsome life. The problem was that um, if you have a mutation, you get a mut that same mutation throughout your body. And if you have an enzyme replacement therapy, it can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so cannot bathe the brain. And so while the general manifestations of the disease might, might be treated well, the capabilities, the, 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 uh, the CNS manifestations of the disease progressed. So, okay, how can we overcome that problem? And so we, we got into a unique partnership with a company to look at um, delivering enzyme replacement therapies in an intrathecal way, right directly into the spine of, of patients. And so patients needed that enzyme replacement therapy. How do we get it there? It's incredible. I, I think that's, a, that's an amazing example. Are there, are there things when you're either in the early planning stages or, or starting to develop, there are one or two things that are mission critical that you have to get right that, um, that you know, may, maybe one of them is the confidence that if you're able to intervene, what are the other ones that, that you really need to be confident you can do? I, off the top of my head, I would feel like in, enrollment to clinical trials is clearly important, but when you're, if the population is big enough um, and you're the, and you're the, you know, you're a first, the first therapy, then there's incredible patient benefit. So often, um, there's a lot of motivation for people to take part in something like this. But um, I know that finding people sometimes can can be the biggest challenge just because of simply how rare the disease is. You know, you're right that that um, enrolling in a clinical study is challenging. There's no doubt it's challenging. And you have very few patients spread across large geographies. One of the challenges in the rare disease space is that um, they have what many refer to as the patient odyssey, where they have these unusual disease manifestations and the parents recognize there's something that is not quite right with their child. They can't put their finger on it. They go to their GP who may have never seen anybody with this and they can go for years without getting the correct diagnosis. And actually, when they actually find out what they have, it can be life altering just knowing that there are other people with this disease. But if you then want to enroll a clinical study, you have these few patients spread out all over the place. So you have to run your study in a different way. You may have to fly in a, a, a patient with their family into a clinical center somewhere. 
um, which you normally wouldn't have to do in a clinical study. But I would say operationally, you can you can do it. But I, I would say the one of the biggest challenges for us was setting aside the operational stuff. How are you going to measure the benefit to patients? Nobody's ever done this before. And so, you know, there's a there's scientific thinking around that. There's engagement of key opinion leaders. And then you have to think, okay, how will we measure it and can we measure it? And then what you don't want to do is a great job on that. And the regulators say, um, actually, we don't feel that is critical. And so you need to engage regulators early and if you can frequently just to get that that kind of dialogue going around what would be uh, what would be acceptable so how are you going to measure benefit if you if you have that, that much confidence that this will work how are you going to measure that in the clinic so that would be something that we would spend a lot of time uh, a lot of time focusing on i would say right so would that typically be through a series of natural history studies is that and working to establish with with patients the, the scientists and physicians who work in the disease what can we measure that correlates with the things that are important to people exactly right and i think the 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 links to patients particularly in the rare disease space is incredibly important um we would always in fact we we never had at, at when i was at shire we never had a single leadership meeting where we didn't at some point in that meeting uh, get uh, an engagement with a patient or a, or a, a caregiver who would talk about the disease and and the manifestations and how they first noticed it and then what happened to them as that d- disease progressed. So in that way, and engaging multiple patients, you get a real sense for what are are those things that would make a huge difference in the lives of patients. And then you can consider how could we um, how could we treat that patient. You also get a sense of the incredible challenges that these patients and their families have and the costs associated with it. I will never forget, we were working in, in um, an area called epidermolysis bullosa. This is where there was, um, there's a, a loss of a protein that connects the skin of the patients um, and the skin literally sloughs off these, these poor children. And, and so you think about how that would change your life. You know, you have to have what caregivers can look after a child that has this. And they would spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars a year bringing in blankets that are made of a special fiber, which would not rub the skin of these children. And so that's got societal, societal um, uh, implications, but also cost implications for the family. And sometimes people talk about the cost of drugs and they don't talk about the cost of not having drugs, both emotionally and financially to to families. But we would engage, we would absolutely engage patients. We would run, we would run um, uh, uh, natural history studies, but there was sometimes a tension there because if you have a, you know, sometimes what we do is run a natural history study as we were developing a drug. We didn't know if we're going to move forward with the drug into clinical studies, but we wanted to understand it. So we would sponsor those. If you bring in a drug later, it's actually quite difficult, especially in rare genetic diseases with children, which are very severe. It's very difficult to 
run placebo arms on those studies because if a child you know has a very short lifespan imagine being the family the parents where you're enrolled in the placebo arm so you had to be incredibly thoughtful about how you would both generate data and how you could how you could from your own studies and also from the literature demonstrate that what we were doing actually really made a difference in in the lives of these patients how would you all typically approach the the ethical challenge of of uh, not not wanting to give um, one arm a placebo how did you how did you typically approach that it varied i would say there's no there was no one answer i'd say whenever we would um think about getting into a disease this would be another factor around what do we know about the natural history of disease and can we can we find a can we run a study can we find information that uh, we can share with clinicians or authorities but sometimes um it's also amazing how the families of children with rare diseases think about the help because they recognize that what we're learning in in assessing their children will actually help the children that come later but may not benefit the, the their their children so you may only be approved to run a clinical trial in one geography so maybe you'd run a natural history study in another in another um country when we have patients that were part of a placebo study we would want to switch them as early as we could onto therapy um so that you know they're not just going to be placebo they are part of the study and so they can get switched onto uh, onto drug just a staggered a staggered start rather than um yeah that that that's really good and you, you mentioned this these challenges around costs and I'd love to talk a little bit about this because it's it's one of the topics that is uh is one of the biggest in rare disease therapies today from one direction we have the incredible new technologies and and old technologies um like small molecules but the incredible costs still of R&D to get these to the point where they can go to clinical trials and ultimately to patients. Um, so on the one hand, we have these costly medicines, but on the other hand, we had, as, as you mentioned, the incredible benefit to, to patients, some of which is capturable and modelable in the, in the healthcare system to say we, we're spending X amount to, to treat someone who's sick and we could spend Y amount to, to make them better. But there's this uncaptured cost as well, which um, in many cases is, is possibly orders of magnitude bigger how how do you all think about, or d- did you at the time and you today think about navigating these this sort of Scylla and Charybdis of you've got to have a viable business to continue to develop drugs in rare disease, but also if you charge too much, then um, you know it cr- creates a lot of you know ill will from the public and healthcare systems, and ultimately there's a concern of can the healthcare system cope with with curing and treating every rare disease. And I'd love to get to that in a moment, but maybe the, you know, the first question of how does, as a, you know, Shire or other rare disease companies think about navigating this, um, this really difficult challenge. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a hot, a hot topic. It has been for years and will continue to be. Um, and of course, when we thought, when we think about it, we are a business, right? I mean, uh, we are a business, and as head of R&D, why do I get into a business? It's it's to be able to treat patients, and, you know, n- there's nothing better than when you can develop a drug from an idea, give it to a patient, and you profoundly change their lives. What an in- 
incredible jobs we have that allow us to do that. And that's what gives me a buzz. That's why, why I love doing what I love doing. But we run a business. We need to get drugs approved. We need to get return to our investors. And for me, the lens I look through that is if we get return, it allows us to plow a, an enormous amount of money into R&D to develop the next wave of therapies. So, you know, I don't, I don't apologize for, you know, when I'm working in companies for wanting those companies to be healthy so that we can treat more, more patients. But you've got to get the balance right. You've got to get return to your, your shareholders, to your investors. Um, but you've got to get, um, you there's also no value in developing something that nobody can afford. I, 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 there's no magic answer to this. We all know the incredible cost of of developing a drug. We all know as well that, you know, of maybe for every 10 drugs that go into clinical studies, maybe only one comes out at the other end. So you've got to cover the cost of all the clinical studies of the others. So in, in the rare disease space, particularly, the cost of developing a biologic, so say you're developing an enzyme or, or an antibody, the cost of developing that enzyme itself, the manufacturing, the understanding of it, the testing of it, is actually pretty much the same as it would be for a large indication. So your base cost is the same. You'll, you'll run smaller clinical studies, that's for sure, but they're diff more difficult to interpret, but they are smaller studies. Um, but you've got a much, so you've, you've got, but you've got a considerable cost and you've got a much lower number of patients that can get your therapy than in a common indication. And so I don't think it's, 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 there's no doubt that you're going to have to charge more for a, a drug that treats rare disease or common indication. That's, I don't think that will ever change. But I, I like the way that authorities are starting to wrap their heads around this challenge. Um, so for example, um, you know, you're right that even NICE in the UK is looking at what's the, what's the five-year kind of cost of direct cost offsets. If you provide benefit, well, and, and you know, ultimately I'm on, I'm on the board of a, a, of a gene therapy company called AvroBio. If you can, at, the, at an extreme, have one and done, you treat patient and for either ever or for a long period of time, you actually treat the disease. What, calculating, as you mentioned earlier, kind of what does that save you? And I think it's considerable. And so they do factor they do factor that in. I also like the thinking around risk sharing models. So if you have a drug which might be even a one and done gene therapy, but you don't there's the opportunity that you get paid over years. Um, if it works, it works right, right? Exactly. Okay. And so can you monitor that over years? And if 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 those positive effects are maintained you'll keep paying, but if they don't, you won't pay. That, that kind of, I like that kind of thinking around risk sharing that um, people are starting to wrap their heads around now, I think. For sure. Yeah. It's, it seems like for a long time, the incentives have been misaligned and, and it feels like we're starting to get a little bit of a, a better alignment around incentives between, you know, clearly the, we want patients to get better, and we want to not bankrupt the healthcare system and the companies developing drugs need to continue, like you say, to be able to invest in R&D. So getting those all pointed in the same direction is, is really the key. Exactly. And I think it's, it's truly you want to win, win, win. 
you want to have a win for the company so that if they're successful, you know, people will still invest in them. You want to have this incredible win for the patients and their families. And then if you can have a win because, you know, the, the payers, be they governments or insurance companies, um, actually you offset their costs. I think you, there is the opportunity to have um, a win-win-win, but it's, it's not easy and it's, it's obviously a hot topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to to transition that into into your next challenge, which was your first CEO role. So you moved from head of R and D and rare diseases at Shire into Northern Biologics. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me how that came about and uh, and and how you ended up at Northern Biologics. Yeah, uh, delighted. Thanks, thanks for asking on that. The um, I've been at Shire for six, coming on seven years. Um, I was very proud of what we'd achieved at Shire. Um, the pipeline was much stronger over the, the time that we were there together. Um, we got a lot of drugs approved. We had a much stronger pipeline. I thought the team was very good. But after that kind of time, you know, I've, I've moved around, as you can tell, a little in my career. And I think this kind of going towards the challenges, where the challenges are, is something that I really like. I, I like, you've got to be prepared for your next role, but I like having maybe 70% of what I'm doing I'm comfortable with, but 30% I'm kind of going into the unknown a little bit. And I I kind of like stretching myself a little bit, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I actually agreed with the CEO of Shire that over a period of time, I would kind of wind down what I was doing at Shire. I left and I purposefully went for a few months without engaging anybody about a potential job. I had no idea what I would do. I didn't want to have any calls from venture companies or or, or smaller company, anybody. I just wanted a break for the first time in my life, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. To be honest, what, what did you do? What did you? How long was it? And uh, what did you do? Probably, let me think. It was probably about five months, something like that. So it was, it was good. So I could travel with my wife. We'd go on vacation. We'd relax. I wouldn't have to look at email constantly. I'd read a little bit, uh, cook a little bit, uh, watch some soccer. You know, I'd be, it would be great. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But in the back of my mind, I knew that at some point I would go in for another role. But I didn't want to rush into something and then and then regret it. So I and I weighed, I weighed up all kinds of things. Did I, did I want to? have an operational role? Did I want to join a venture company? Did I want to just be on boards? Um, did I, you know, want to be a consultant? And and in the end, I kind of gravitated towards, um, for the right opportunity, uh, becoming a CEO. I, I have a lot of experience in R&D. So I always wanted to go to a company, and I love R&D. I wanted to go to a company that had a strong R&D kind of background. Um, but I'd also been on company leadership teams. I was on the Shire executive team. So I kind of knew how to think about strategic issues for companies as well and managing with boards and engaging boards. I'd had, I've had some incredible mentors in my life, um, incredible mentors in my life. I worked for a year at the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Labs as, a, as an undergraduate and just absolutely loved the mentorship from a guy called Peter Martin there. And right the way through my career, um, I've had great mentors, but, and I've picked up something from each of them. They're all very different, picked up something, but I, I think I developed my own leadership style. So I thought if I can find a challenge, which has got the right kind of science, my R and D interests, uh, the company is 
moving in the right direction or can help it move in the right direction. I can apply my own leadership style. It'd be kind of fun to, to kind of head the whole organization and, and see if I can shape it. And Northern was an interesting company for me. It was very exciting science in what was, again, a hot field, immuno-oncology, um, very much focused on uh, changing the tumor microenvironment by various approaches, um, which either on, its, on their own or in combination with other drugs would open up all kinds of new opportunities. The scientific team was fantastic that, we, uh, that they had there at Northern and, and the and excellent investors. And you shouldn't take that comment lightly, the excellent investors, because there are some investors in small companies who have a very financial short-term focus, whereas you work with the right venture companies that understand um, early stage R&D, they realize you can be on this very interesting winding path, but they hang in there with you so that you can get a breakthrough. And they had, I had great investors. The other thing that I, I really loved about Northern was we were thinking about translational sciences a lot, which is something I've developed a passion for. So when you go into, into man, you've developed a drug which work, might work well in a cell. It might work well in an animal model. How can you show that when you go into man, it's manifesting the biology that, that you've seen in animals and it's not trivial. Um, and so when we went into the clinic, we, um, we would take, not only look for classic kinds of responses in, in cancer patients with tumor shrinkage and, and such like, but we would take matched metastatic biopsies from metastatic lesions pre and post treatment and look in those identical biopsies for what on earth did the drug do in those tumors and look at T-cell infiltration into a tumor and macrophage population shifting, um, sig cell signaling changing exactly as we would have wanted to have seen based on what we'd seen in animals. And I think that's a, that's a very important thing that's going to be an increasing trend in the industry is, 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 is that kind of thinking. And so as that data came out, pharma were interested in it and, and eventually acquired that asset. And that same thinking applied to our preclinical assets, which were also acquired. So after a couple of years, those assets moved off into a bigger company and uh, we, we wish them well. How did you approach that decision from the CEO position, whether you continue to develop independently as a company or, or whether you get acquired or join forces with another? Be interested to hear whether, I know in the industry there's a lot of companies, this is the, that is the path because you know what we're developing here is going to fit in really well with something that's already existing. And they have the, you know, they, they have the, the structures and tools to take it to the next level. But in other cases, it, it can be a, uh, I think, a game time decision. I'd love to hear how you think about that in general and also in this specific case. Yeah, my, my thinking about that has evolved over time because, um, yeah, you can, you can develop assets within a small biotech with a view to this would fit very nicely within this company's portfolio, this company's portfolio. Um, and that's a reasonable thing to do. And you may have a cluster of assets of that type. And I'd say that was the same at, um, at Northern. We had some really terrific assets that I thought really could make and can make a difference in the lives of patients. But we didn't have an overarching 
kind of technology platform. There wasn't a, a new kind of, they were all antibody approaches. There wasn't an overarching new technology approach or an, an overarching secret source where we owned a certain biology. Um, good assets. In those situations, I think what we did was right. It was to, to move those assets to a point where we demonstrated efficacy. A company could then take those on and say, if, if and safety, company can take those on. They fit in well with their portfolio. They've got far deeper pockets than we can have to kind of explore the biology with multiple clinical endpoints, um, multiple clinical indications, and try and get value from it that we as a small company could not have done. And, you know, we will get benefit from that. Our, our investors will, should that be successful, then the investors will get the return as those things go through the uh, the process. What I've currently moved into is a company which is quite different. It's a platform. And so I think there you have the opportunity. You can have platforms which are technology platforms, SIRNA or Antisense or whatever. Or you can have um, platforms which are understanding a particular type of biology better than anybody else understands it. And then have programs that come from that. I think in that type of platform company, you have the ability to be able to own your own destiny a little bit more. Sure, you'll have partnerships on particular programs, but the core of the of the company you own, you can grow, and you have the potential to go through an IPO, become a public company, and grow. I think you can you can do that a lot better when you're a platform company than if you're just an asset uh, an asset company. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and I think it's a perfect segue into the work you're doing at Phase. The the platform is called Molecular Condensates. Con- condensates. You can correct me on how it's said, but I, I wager that probably almost nobody listening to the podcast has any idea what these things are <laughs> since it's a relatively new area of biology in general. So I'd, I'd love if you could give us the explanation of, of what they are and what the relevance to disease is. Yeah. So um, delighted to so molecular condensates, and I don't care how, how we pronounce <laughs> it personally, but maybe it depends on what side it's of the Atlantic. Atlantic exactly. We've we flipped. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's been increasing amounts of literature on biomolecular condensates in just the last few years. It's really a, a quite a hot, hot area at the moment, but they are dynamic, membrane-free, uh, subcellular organelles, um, they kind of bring together transiently RNA and proteins in ways that allow them to interact in the biological way that they're intended to interact. And then they're dynamic. And so portions of these condensates, proteins within the condensates may leave the condensates, may come back. These condensates can form, they can break up. It's a highly dynamic. It appears to be a fundamental way of regulating biology. Um, it's very rapidly evolving, and there are a range of such condensates. So, for example, stress granules um, form, they address some kind of a stress, and then they might come apart. The nucleolus um, is, is another one. There are a range of these um, types of structures. As they are what we believe to be a new kind of fundamental biology, then it's no surprise that perturbation of something which has a a role in fundamental biology condensates in this case is associated with disease and and that that is the case so we're focusing on ALS Um, so mutations in genes linked to ALS are associated with with 
changes in proteins that are in these condensates, and that changes the dynamics of the condensates. And there's a potential link to the fibrillization of TDP43, which is a kind of a hallmark of ALS. So, you know, we have some world-leading scientific founders in the space of um, condensate biology, Paul Taylor, Mike Rosen, Roy Parker, Ron Vale, they will keep us at the front edge of this breaking science. And then our focus is applying that knowledge of condensates to drive forward uh, drug discovery programs. That's super clear. And, and you anticipate one of my questions, which is when you have this molecular condensate system which you it's a it's an organelle effectively and i I remember the first time when you learn about organelles in high school biology or or college if you if you do that then they paint this great picture of you've got the golgi body and then the plasma oh yeah you got those (laughs) and uh, mitochondria but actually i think the true story is there's a there's tens or hundreds of other ones that just don't even make it into the textbooks and this is it's not even one that's static right these are sort of moving um, combinations of things that come together at a point in time, do a function and then dissipate. So how do you, how do you drug something like that? If you know something's going wrong, do you focus on the protein that you described? So that thinking about the biology, there's a mutation that, or a genetic variant that may be causing, or at least in part predisposing to ALS, this is involved in bringing together, or at least a part of that, um, that, substructure and then how but how do you actually imagine that you can then get it into the into the form or function that it needs to be to be healthy yeah it's a great question and that's where our intense focus is at the moment and it's in its early days but we're we're having a very particular approach to doing that so first of all we want to understand the condensate we want to understand the composition of the condensate and we want to understand the regulation of the condensate. And we do this in, in a variety of ways um, and set up assays related to condensates. You can do some of these in essentially a test tube. You can look at condensates um, in cells as well now um, and see them form and see them break apart and see them changing. Pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable stuff. Um, but in understanding what triggers them to come together. And some of this you can do with genetics as well, where there are changes in a particular protein that might not allow these condensates to form or they form in a different way. It gives you some insights as to which of the proteins within this condensate are key to condensate biology. Um, And so what we do is not look at the condensate as a whole, but look at the condensate Um, and then identify particular targets within that condensate that we believe can control that condensate. And then then we'll actually do things which are not dissimilar to what you would do in classic drug discovery. It's taking cutting-edge biology and then applying classic drug discovery. You know, we've got um, small molecule programs targeting proteins within the condensate. We'll measure intrinsic potency, And then we'll set up these unique assays to say, okay, we've got this potent inhibitor of this protein. What will it do in the condensate in a cell or in a test tube? And and how does that affect? And will that reverse the effects that you're seeing in disease? Um, It's a bit like actually, it's not that dissimilar from lysosomal storage disorders that we discussed earlier. There, we're not, you don't have a drug discovery approach, which 
looks at the, the lysosomal storage, lysosome itself, you identify the targets within that lysosome, maybe the enzymes that are linked to rare diseases, and then target those particular enzymes. And so that's what we're doing and applying it in the uh, condensate space. Great. That's crystal clear. We're we're running up against time here, and I'm disappointed because this has been such an amazing interview, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. I have just two more questions for you. The, the first is, what does the path look like from where you are today with phase to, to getting a therapy into patients? What, what do you need to do to get there? We're on that path, I would say. By the basic biology, we, we um, have access to that um, through our founders and through our own work. We now have moved to the point where we have some assays which are drug screen, appropriate for drug screening. Beauty of those is, as we learn about conden- one particular condensate, so we have an interest in stress granules, as we find out about those stress granules and its relationship to ALS, we can understand how those stress granules can affect other diseases, but also it allows us to hop into another condensate that'll have another disease. We've already identified targets. We've already started to apply chemistry, and we're now running the screen, so it's a particularly exciting time. It's it's some time before we'll be in the clinic, but um, we're, we're off and running, shall I say. That's amazing. And one final question here, which is just more of a general one. I, I think that the world is on a long but fairly inevitable march towards personalized medicine, um, And but obviously there are still many obstacles we need to overcome. I'm curious whether whether you agree that we're on the march towards personalized medicine, and if so, what are the biggest obstacles that you see to us delivering personalized medicines at scale in the healthcare system? I completely agree. I think we're already on this journey. I think it's, um, I don't know what's faster than a march, but I think it'll actually be faster than the many will anticipate. You know, and the way I think of personalized medicine is these differences at the molecular, genetic, physiological level, do they provide, between patients, do they provide opportunities for interventions that that are kind of tailored to those nuances. Um, and I think most people think about it as, well, this person has a mutation. Is there a drug that's going to particularly focus on patients that have this particular mutation? And I, there are examples of that already, and there's going to be a lot more examples of that. And people are developing. They're already in pipelines. The way people think about breast cancer today it's totally different from the way people were talking about breast cancer a few years ago. And right. The same will be true of, 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 of other indications. In fact, I would say, if you're, you know, we talk about rare diseases and common diseases. I think there's an argument, actually, a common disease is just a cluster of rare diseases that you put under the umbrella of a, of a particular disease. Completely agree. But I'd say it's also beyond just targeting patients with a particular mutation. It's pharmacokinetics. Um, you know, you look at the warfarin story, for example, and it's it's these changes in drug metabolizing enzymes that affect warfarin. So it'll only work in certain patients. So it's not just intrinsic potency, it's pharmacokinetics, it's potential safety issues, and a huge, huge area that I, I is, is a march. I don't know how long we'll take on this, is the disease prevention space. Absolutely. So, you know, patients have mutations and it predisposes them to a disease, how does how do payers respond to that? How do uh, healthcare providers respond to that? Um, are they prepared 
to treat patients who are predisposed to disease but are not yet manifesting that disease, that kind of goes against all practice but could have a very profound impact on the lives of patients and actually save a lot of money. So I think there's all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of opportunities, incredibly exciting. And I think that the biggest challenges are actually the societal challenges, not not so much the scientific, we'll deal with the scientific ones, but I think it's how do you deal with paying for a drug to prevent somebody developing a disease what about pricing? What about privacy issues with respect to, to genetic data? So it's an incredibly exciting time right now, I think. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you, Phil, so much. I really appreciate it. It was an amazing interview. I think we covered an, a huge amount of ground. And, uh, and, and thank you so much for taking the time. Absolute pleasure, Patrick. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.